the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Time now for the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. There are some churches that pride themselves in being specialists in certain ministry areas. Maybe it's a church that prides itself in having a phenomenal music program. Maybe another that has incredible youth or children's outreach. Still others that are phenomenal at doing local outreach, feeding the homeless, providing soup kitchens, things of this sort. Rare is the church that hits the spot on all of those points and then some. But I think that certainly describes my guest today and our Focus Church. Joining me is the senior pastor of Covenant Community Church of Vacaville, Pastor Nancy Duff. Pastor Duff, a delight to have you with us. It's good to be with you, Craig. And would you please call me Nancy? Nancy, I'll be happy to do so. I I was struck by the fact that there are so many aspects of Covenant that, as I suggested in my opening remarks, really hit on all eight cylinders, as we often say. Uh, There's focus on local ministry. You guys are involved in in food bank work. You do volunteer work at the local rescue mission. But then globally, you're supporting missions work in places like Honduras and Mexico. And then your background alone, and not only being kind of a specialist, if we can call it that, in small group ministry, and also a background um, at uh, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which to many of our listeners is a ministry that maybe they even came to Christ through. It's just, I, I think it's refreshing to see that there's really a sense at Covenant of wanting to to reach as many people in as many ways, in as many places, kind of harnessing that sense of Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. I would say that that really is our goal. Now, coupled with that, we are a small church. We have 120 members. We have 70 to 90 members uh, in church on Sundays. Uh, And so one of the things that we've been working on is uh, figuring out what slice of ministry God has for our church, our particular church, Covenant Community Church in Vacaville, because we're not the large church that can do many things well. We have tried to be very strategic in terms of saying which ministry partners can we connect with globally, which is a good fit. And by God's grace, there is a, a one of our elders has a a son and daughter-in-law and three grandchildren who are at work as missionaries in Honduras. And so that is a natural fit for us. The various uh, natural fits in terms of local missions are things that God has called us to, and we're, we're trying to to focus as well as being all things for all people. I think- what we can do well is we are family. That's, that's the sweetness of the size of the church, is we are deeply family together. I think the notion of, of looking at strategic partners and understanding that it really becomes more of a glimpse of the function of the body of Christ, that, you know, if we had four hands and no feet, that may not be as useful as if we had just the opposite four feet and no hands. But understanding that there can be strategic partnerships that can, in a sense, elevate the impact of the ministry of a church, both globally and interna- and locally, I think is is phenomenal. And, and, and to your point regarding not being a so-called megachurch, um, I, I've always felt that that tends to be a bit overrated. I think it's almost, in some respects, a, a Western ideal. I mean, we, we count mm-hmm. our success on how many widgets did the business sell, how many people showed up at the baseball game. It all tends to be measured on numbers. And yet, when you look at the success of the church in the first century, it, it was really based not on quantity, but rather on quality. I mean, when you consider the fact that 12 people carry this message that resonates here two millennia later, 
says to me that it, it is not necessarily a numbers game. Now, do we want to reach the entire world for Christ? Absolutely. Does Scripture remind us that, that none should perish? Absolutely. And yet I think sometimes some churches focus so much on got to get them in the seats, got to get them in the seats, that we become a church that is a mile wide and just an inch deep in terms of maturity. You think that's true? I, I definitely think that's true. Uh, I think we pick up a lot of our that uh, way of measuring success from our culture around us. Uh, and when you go back to the biblical uh, evidence, uh, it's it's totally different. Uh, we're working through First Thessalonians together in a uh, sermon series currently. And the way that Paul, Silas, and Timothy describe their ministry there is family. They, they say, we were little children with you. We were like your moms. We were like your dads. We were like your brothers and sisters. Well, you can't do that in a huge church. You can in pockets and small groups. That's the, the great value of small groups. But there's, there's something amazingly sweet about going deep with people for years and years and years. By the way, I think another thing that we tend to pick up from our culture is we think uh, leaders should be lone rangers. Uh, so, so we always talk about Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. But... It is very clearly a letter written by a ministry team to a church they love, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. That's a valid point, and I want to kind of break down those two issues separately. Let's start first with this notion of the small group, and I know that's also an arena of your expertise. Prior to coming to Covenant Community Church, you, in fact, um, were the associate pastor of small group ministries, so you have a lot of rich depth in this field. And it's always struck me. And again, I, I want to be clear for people listening and saying, wait a minute, I go to a large church. Are you saying, Craig, there's something wrong with that? No, absolutely not. What I am suggesting, however, is sometimes in that large setting, it's easy to hide. And by that, I mean, you can show up to church. You're there with 9,999 other people. There may be issues going on in your life that you really need support and encouragement and prayer for, accountability for that you miss out on when you're a stranger essentially coming in, slipping in through the back door and back out again. That notion of iron sharpening iron, I think sometimes gets lost. And I think that that level of interaction that we can have, that sense of bearing one another's burdens, that can really only come from a small group setting that is more intimate, more personal. And listen, Jesus could have opted and said, you know, I'm going to have 10,000 disciples following me during his ministry on earth. And I would find that would probably be pretty unwieldy and very difficult for him to be intimate with that many people and really kind of get down into the bushes, so to speak. So I think there's a lot to be said for small groups, whether we're talking about breakouts within a large church or within a small local church. And even 120 people is too big to get to know people intimately. And so we definitely have small groups of covenant. Yeah, God calls us into family. He, he creates families for us, our, our biological families, and then he redeems and adopts us into his own family. And yes, it's the broad family of the church universal, but it's also the the opportunity to do family well with other believers, and those are in smaller settings. And doesn't that, Pastor, also come back to that core issue of relationship? I mean, I mean, after all, when you when you look at the the core message of salvation and Christ's work on the cross, yes, it's about forgiveness, it's about reconciliation, but it's about reconciliation unto relationship because God so longs and hungers to have relationship with his creation. And of course, our sin nature gets in the way of that, which is why Christ becomes that bridge between mankind and God. And I and I think to myself that, you know, if we're really going to encourage each other, we need to have those kinds of relationships. And I think maybe perhaps, and maybe you can comment to this, Nancy, that there's a sense sometimes that people can be in the middle of, of, of connectedness to a large church, people at work, and yet they go home with a deep sense of loneliness, because there's not that deep relational connection that God so longs to not only have us have with him, but also within the body of Christ. One of the places you see that in particular is uh, among pastors themselves. Mm. It's hard for pastors to step down from pedestals and to, to choose to be vulnerable with the people in their church. 
And I definitely believe we need to have boundaries around that. But if we are separating ourselves from the, the people in our congregations, we are creating all sorts of problems for ourselves because we were born to be in relationship. I wonder if that knife cuts both ways, and and this goes to your observation regarding the so-called Lone Ranger, that sometimes we think, well, you know, listen, I, I haven't gone to seminary. I don't have a theological degree. My goodness, Pastor Duff is a graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary with a Master in Divinity. I don't have that. I, I can't really speak to people that effectively, but Pastor's an expert, and so the professionals will handle such matters. And I wonder if sometimes we kind of hide behind that as an excuse, failing to recognize that when we talk about th- these matters of, of reaching and teaching and both being disciples and making disciples, that's not just the job of the so-called professional. That's something that really is is for all of us to be involved with, and that most effective ministry is not just one kingpin at the top, but rather all of us functioning together as independent parts of the body, as we alluded to a moment ago. Absolutely. And, and Ephesians 4 talks about how pastors are called, w- along with uh, teachers and evangelists, to, to equip the saints for ministry, but not to do the ministry. We can't possibly do the ministry. And, and pastors need ministry done unto them as well, because I, th- I think God has arranged spiritual gifts in the body, well, clearly scripture says he does that as he chooses. I think it is a deliberate strategy that he doesn't give any one person all of the spiritual gifts. And so everybody is interdependent by design by God so that together we need each other to build one another up to maturity. I'd like to spend a couple of moments talking about uh, your work as a uh, campus staff member with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And boy, talk about a golden opportunity uh, to catch young people that are at that growing stage. They're they're maturing into adults. They're they're sort of planting the foundation of not only who they are as individuals, but also their belief system, their education, things of that sort. Tell me a bit about your experience with InterVarsity and why was that important? Oh my goodness, you hit my sweet spot. I was a student with InterVarsity, and in InterVarsity, I learned uh, down at UC San Diego and then at Cal State Northridge. And then I was on staff with InterVarsity uh, in the San Fernando Valley for six years. Um, both as a student and then as a staff worker, uh, our goal was to reach our college campus for Jesus. And that meant uh, I had to teach students. I learned as a student, then I had to help students view their college campus as a mission field, figure out what it was that God was calling them to do at that particular time, that particular uh, era, that that location, uh, and then to do it. And uh, they were motley crews of students at a Cal State, uh, highly mixed uh, ethnically, uh, highly mixed with uh, in, in terms of interests, uh, background. And what we were able to do is I was able to help teams of Christians look at their college campus, figure it out, figure out what God wanted them to do, uh, take steps in sharing their faith, take steps in leading Bible discussions when they had had no experience in doing that, but take baby steps at that. What, what's fun is the group I was with at Cal State Northridge is about the size of Covenant Community Church. And so it's here what I'm doing is uh, helping the elders take a look at their community, take a look at the needs in our neighborhood and figure out what it is that we can do in Jesus' name. Is part of this also helping young people? kind of find their calling. I mean, I talked earlier about the notion of them yes. finding who they are in Christ yes. and and so yes. forth. But, you know, that's one thing we all so often hear. I know I, I get calls every once in a while and people say, well, Craig, I, I know you know what God wants you to do. I'm still trying to figure that out. And, and the notion of trying to understand where exactly in God's economy we are supposed to be, the skills that he has given us, and now how to put those skills to work for the glory of the kingdom. Is that a big component of what InterVarsity was doing? Yes. And, you know, one of the places that I saw students starting to recognize callings is through small groups, Mm. because often you don't even realize what it is that God has gifted you with, because for you, it's it's the water you breathe. It's other people speaking into your life saying, 
I can't believe how what you said there made an impact in my life. Or I never would have been able to share the gospel the way that you shared the gospel with that that person that she sat down with. Uh, it's it's getting that feedback and then having the places where you can take baby steps of trying out things. Uh, and InterVarsity was a great opportunity for that. The, the other thing that I think is very difficult is for people in their teens and 20s to really know what it is that God is calling you to. I remember, well, I, I didn't uh, go to seminary until my 40s. Uh, and at that point, I had had enough confirmation of gifts and skills from enough different places that I was willing to take those steps. But I, I don't know how realistic it is for most people to sense calling ministry in their early 20s. There's certainly some risk-taking there, uh, to be sure, because as you say, there there is not that history. And yet, I think having that kind of foundation early on is so critically important, not only to one's uh, own spiritual growth and development and maturity, but also eventually toward fulfilling whatever it is that God is, has gifted them to. And, and I want to be clear that this doesn't mean that everybody is going to be called to pastoring a church or being an evangelist or being in full-time Christian missions of some sort. You can be post office worker, you can be a truck driver, you can be a real estate agent, and be engaged in evangelism in the marketplace and be as equally impactful and effective. And so I think it's important for people to understand that. And I, and I think the importance too, you, you, you hearken back to small groups. I was involved back back in the Stone Age with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and um, served as president of the, at, at the time of the largest huddle in the state of California. We had no less than four meetings a week talking about being busy. But for me, the most important meeting, aside from a public Bible study and an outreach huddle, was our weekly leadership prayer meeting. And there was only about six of us that were involved in leadership. But I think I had more growth opportunities in that experience than even in the large group setting. And I think there's a lot to be said about that. And I think the other thing, too, is helping young people understand that in a day and an age when they're not only trying to figure themselves out, but are being offered so many options, many of which, as we know, are not always healthy ones, um, to, to, to have that kind of presence on a campus uh, that can speak truth to people that are hopefully there every day with the goal of wanting to learn more about truth, I think is critically important. And the earlier that we can establish that firm foundation in a person's life, I think greater the likelihood is that they're going to go on to love and serve the Lord for the entirety of their life. Let's talk a bit about the ministry of Covenant Community Church. My goodness, Nancy, broad and deep and wide, as we suggested earlier. Uh, and, And I just, I love the sense of emphasis on real community and coming together and encouraging one another on a, on a horizontal relationship level, in addition, of course, to predominantly uh, the, the vertical level. But take a moment, if you would, somebody new to the Bay Area saying, you know what? Boy, I really like what I hear Pastor Nancy share from her heart. I'd like to come up and see what God's doing at Covenant Community Church. Tell us a bit about that. You would be so warmly welcomed. We would be celebrating that you are with us our worship service during if you watch the the everybody who checks out churches looks at the worship service online in advance one of the things that's unique to us is we actually spend a lot of time during the greet greeting time in the middle of the service it's it's not a turn to one person to do a perfunctory handshake it's people walking around the the sanctuary and and interacting with one another and again one of the things that i see is retired people reaching out to uh, elementary school kids that they have cared for during VBS and checking in on them, kind of continuing to build those relationships. Our goal is to to help you be connected in ways that feel safe and in ways that will uh, help you grow in your faith. And, and the other thing that we're very clear about is if God brings you to us, you are a gift to us. You are going to help us grow spiritually. And we we cherish that. We value that. We just had a, uh, a newcomer's party on Sunday uh, to help newly arrived people in the church to uh, uh, learn more about our values, learn more about uh, our focuses. We also spent a lot of time just helping us get to know each other, the newcomers with some of the leaders of the church. 
there was a lot of laughter. There was a lot of honesty and authenticity, even in that meeting. And so this is a place where if you come, you will be, you will become family and we will cherish you. We are absolutely committed to the, the word of God. Uh, we are absolutely convinced that God has planted us in this area for his purposes. And we are very thoughtful at what we do. We know we can't do everything. We're, we're not that big. Uh, but, but what we do, we do with, with enthusiasm. This is not a church that is staff-led. This is a church that really is the body of Christ that pitches in to, to love our community, to uh, love one another, to care for one another when there are tough times. I, I think the, the big question is, why is it that more people have not yet found us? What is it that God is calling us to do to get our name out in the community? Uh, one of the things I think he's doing is I think he's getting us ready because uh, about a block away, we have about 500 new houses being built. And so there's a, an excitement of uh, opportunity. It's also a, a winsome spirit in the church. Uh, there's not insiders and outsiders. There's not people who look down on other people. There is a humility and a winsomeness and authenticity that I have not seen in very many churches. Some churches have a church name that seldom really represents or explains who they are. But in hearing you share today from your heart, your passion for ministry, what God is doing at Covenant, I'm struck by a sense that you seem to be, as a, as a, as a church, working very hard to be true to the entirety of your name, meaning that walking in covenant, first and foremost with God, then with each other, having a gathering that has a real sense of community or, or connectedness, that you're just not a number or a donor, but you're, you're somebody that's part of a family. And then that community sense working together to understand what it means to not just do church, but to be the church and experience what the church is, not as a building per se or as a organization, but rather as an organism that is part of the function of who Christ calls his bride. I'm just thrilled by that. I want to mention to listeners, by the way, if you are new to the Vacaville area, looking for a new church home, um, perhaps there's been some changes in your family and uh, you're looking for a new church home. We want to encourage you to uh, check out Covenant Community Church of Vacaville. They meet at 3870 Alamo Drive in Vacaville. And you can get all kinds of great information. You can experience some of Pastor Nancy's sermons as well as check out many of the offerings available for uh, everyone from ages zero to 100 and beyond at Covenant Community Church by checking out their website at CCC, think Covenant Community Church, VV, that's CCCVV, think Vacaville, VV, right? CCCVV. Dot org, or you can call the church directly at area code 707-448-5234. Well, Pastor Nancy Duff, it's been a delight to get a chance to visit with you, have you share a little bit of not only your background, your passion, your heartbeat for ministry, but also to uh, kind of pull back the curtain, so to speak, on what God is doing with the great body of believers there at Covenant Community Church. So thanks for spending some time with us today. It's been a privilege, Craig. Thank you. Welcome to those of you who are new or fairly new. We are so glad you are worshiping with us in person or online. I'm Nancy Duff, the pastor here at Covenant. We've been working through a sermon series called Big News, God Reaching Out. In that, we've been looking at some of the multitude of different ways that God has reached out to people in Scripture and how he calls us into the adventure of participating with him in reaching out. His goal is to reach out to all people of the world, all ethnicities, all cultures, all languages, all tongues, so that one day everyone will worship him together in heaven. So as we come alongside God in that work, it's pretty common for us today to be talking with people from, from different cultures, 
different spiritual traditions. How do we do that well? How do we build on receptivity without raising resistance? How do we speak winsomely without being wimpy? How do we defend without becoming defensive? One of our best models for honest, respectful conversations across different cultures, across different faith backgrounds, comes in Jesus' encounter with a woman at the well in Samaria. But before we look at that passage together, I need to go back and rehabilitate some things for those of you who may remember that passage from hearing about it or reading it sometime in the past. We need to rehabilitate both Samaritans and that particular woman. First, Samaritans. We have based our assumptions about them from first century Jewish presumptions about them. Jews saw themselves as superior to Samaritans. Samaritans didn't view it that way. Both groups were descendants of Abraham, but there had been tensions between the two people groups for centuries. We don't have time to go into all of that this morning, but but basically in Jesus' time, most Jews based Samaritans as people who had sold out to a pagan culture centuries earlier. The Samaritans, on the other hand, saw themselves as the ones who actually followed God's original commands to Moses more closely. They believed in Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They thought it was wrong for the Jews to have added extra books onto the Bible through the centuries. So based on what God had originally told Moses, they believed that the proper place to worship was on Mount Gerizim. And so that's where they worshiped. They thought the Jews were wrong to worship in Jerusalem. God didn't say anything about that to Moses. Of course, the Jews thought the Samaritans were worshiping in the wrong place because of what God had said to King David centuries later. You may be interested in knowing that there are still Samaritans in Israel today. The people group has dwindled down to under a thousand individuals, but they're still there, worshiping in their traditional historic sites, proud of their heritage, proud of their theology. So that's the Samaritans. What about the woman? Over the years, a lot of assumptions have been made about her. Assumptions filtered through our Western culture. She has sometimes been portrayed as a floozy, a woman who goes after guy after guy and then divorces husband after husband and finally ends up shacking up with with someone she's not married to. She is assumed to be so shunned by the village and so ashamed of her morality that she only is willing to sneak out in the middle of the day to get water at the well when no one else is there. Randy Richards, in his recent book, Misreading Scripture with Individualist Eyes, points out that there are no ancient texts that have been found that indicate that Getting water in the middle of the day means anything other than you need water in the middle of the day. And it reminds us that marriage worked differently in the first century. We, in our Western culture, view marriage as very individualistic, something between two individuals. But it didn't work like that in the first century. Back then, the main purpose of marriage was to unite families, to produce heirs. Women would often get married in their early teens, and they would often be married to an older man 
who was finally able to support them. And so it wasn't unusual back then for a young woman to have been widowed several times before she got very old. Meanwhile, divorce was very common back then. Men could and did divorce their wives for just about any reason. But women rarely had the opportunity to initiate a divorce. And then finally, back then, marriages were arranged by the couple's families. They were brokered. They, they were decided between the larger communities. If this woman had been doing some hanky-panky, nobody would have wanted her to marry into their family. So it's probable that this woman had survived some widowhoods, some divorces, possible that the worst sin she had committed was to be barren. That was a very common reason for divorce back then. Some find, somehow she finally ended up living with someone who was not her husband, and Richards goes into a number of reasons that that could have happened in that culture for which she would not have been at fault. One thing we do know definitively is that she was not shunned by her town. We know that because later when we see that she goes back to them to tell them about her encounter with Jesus and to ask them to help her figure out whether he might be the Messiah, they listen to her and they gladly go with her. That means she has a lot of credibility in that town. So, with those assumptions put aside, let's look at this cross-cultural conversation. John chapter 4, starting with verse 3, you can read in your Bibles or you can follow along on the screens. So Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Jesus did not have to go through Samaria. Most Jews didn't. They took the long way around on the other side of the Jordan River so that they could avoid Samaria. But Jesus went through Samaria, and he rested at a well. A well is a public gathering place, kind of like a coffee shop today. Jesus didn't sit down off the beaten path. He sat down in a public place. Kind of like if you were to go into a coffee shop today and sit down at the group table. Or if you were to go in your school cafeteria and sit down at a different table just to see what might happen. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus is on her turf. He takes initiative, but he does it in a safe way. It would have felt ordinary to be asked for a drink of water at a well, kind of like it might feel ordinary if someone up, came up to you in the grocery store and asked you what time it is. But his request breaks two cultural boundaries. 
She's a woman, and men rarely spoke to women in one-on-one contexts. And she's a Samaritan. Jews viewed Samaritans as ceremonially unclean. Jesus shouldn't want to drink from her water jug. It would kind of be like today if a vegan asked for a bite of your hamburger. (laughs) The woman recognizes that Jesus is breaking cultural boundaries. She could have ignored him. She could have refused the request. But instead, she engages in conversation. So Jesus continues. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? The woman is in the catbird seat. I imagine her asking this question while tapping her water jug knowing she is the only one able to get water in that conversation. And she knows this well. She knows its depth. She knows its history. She knows that it's her people's history. And she is proud of that history. She says, Jacob gave us this well. That happened over a thousand years earlier, but she's still claiming that. She's proud of her people, of their tradition. She thinks her belief system trumps Jesus' belief system because it's more ancient. It goes back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She knows what Jews think about Samaritans, and she knows what she thinks about Jews. She's ready to take Jesus on. Jesus doesn't take the bait. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus doesn't get into a standoff on who's got the truth. Instead, he goes back to a basic need that they share. We all need water. You need water. I need water. Everyone needs water. We will, each of us, one day get thirsty again. But I have a different kind of water to offer. And at this point... He's built enough trust with the woman that she can hear that and is intrigued. She asks for him to give her water. The tables have turned. And then because he's built trust, he's able to step into a more personal space. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. In our culture, it's acceptable for women to be unmarried. So we sometimes assume that she's brushing Jesus off or lying when she tells him she has no husband. Technically, she is telling the truth. 
In that culture, being an unmarried woman wasn't something that was just accepted. Being an unmarried woman was a tragedy. And she shares that pain with Jesus. That one sentence, I have no husband, carries more pain than you can imagine. She's not brushing Jesus off. She's opening up, being vulnerable. Jesus has created the space for her to do that safely. And Jesus responds to that pain by saying, I know. I know the whole sad story. And that creates the space for the woman to go further spiritually. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Some commentators believe that she is embarrassed or ashamed and so is trying to change the subject. But the question she asks goes to the very core of the tensions and differences between those two religions. The core of the conflict between Jews and Samaritans for centuries. And Jesus has created the safety for her to go there. To engage in dialogue across that division. She may have been wondering about that question for years. But it was a risky question for her to ask in her context. Because she was questioning the bedrock of her faith tradition. But she feels safe enough to ask it of Jesus. She calls Jesus a prophet. Samaritans didn't believe in any prophets after Moses, but she calls Jesus a prophet, and she asks Jesus, a Jew, a question about worship. Now, she phrases it as a who's right, who's wrong question. Jesus doesn't fall into the either-or trap. He says none of the above. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Jesus doesn't water down the truth. He's clear that salvation comes from the Jews, but he doesn't let that shut down the conversation. He defends the truth while respecting her faith tradition. In fact, he finds a significant point of commonality. They both worship the same father. He comes from a posture of humility. He's honest about a problem in his faith community. It's similar to a problem in her faith community. Both have gotten fixated on the place for worship. Where do we go to seek God? And Jesus says, it's not about place. And it's not about seeking God. God seeks worshipers. God is seeking you. The woman then finds another point of connection. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. The Samaritan view of the Messiah was different than the Jewish view, but Jesus doesn't parse the differences between what they believe. Instead, 
He acknowledges their connection and reveals who he is to this Samaritan woman before most of the disciples have ever figured this out. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking to her? Imagine those 12 men just standing there, not saying anything, just staring at the elephant in the room. Jesus talking with someone across gender lines, culture lines, belief lines. They were surprised. The good news is they kept their mouths shut. Yay, disciples. (laughs) The woman then heads back to town with a new question. Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Jump down to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, They urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. There's where, finally, Jesus begins to teach more thoroughly about who he is and what Scripture says about who he is. To these Samaritans, They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Remember John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is in John 4, just one chapter later, and we are seeing already how God loves the world. These Samaritans recognize that Jesus is the Savior of the world, and that includes them. All of this happened because two people were willing to have a conversation across cultural barriers and across faith traditions in a public space, like a coffee shop, or a school cafeteria, or a parking lot. Parking lots are public spaces. A few years ago, at my former church, I was crossing our parking lot to go home and discovered that even though the parking lot was almost entirely empty, there was a UPS truck parked right in front of my car, blocking my car. So I went looking for the UPS guy to ask him to please move his car. I found him. He was on the grass writhing in pain. He wasn't our regular UPS guy, so I told him I was one of the pastors of that church and and asked if he was okay. He gasped out that he wasn't, so I called 911. While I was doing that, he asked me to use his phone to call his wife to tell her what was going on. So for a few moments, I was having a conversation with 911 in one hand and with his wife in the other hand. And then suddenly, two people ran up from across the street and said, we're, we're 
medical professionals, do you need some help? And so, so they got involved. I gave them the 911 phone call, and I kept talking to his wife. And then some other people came out of our church and offered to help, and we were all trying to do what we could and staying out of the way of the medical emergency people. And the ambulance came up, and they loaded him on and drove him off to the hospital. His wife drove up right as the ambulance was pulling off, so I went over and told her what had happened and which hospital, and and I gave her my cell phone. I told her we were praying for her husband, and I asked if we could have an update. She had her little 16-month-old baby daughter in the car with her. She took my cell phone number and, and, and drove off. Later that evening, she, she texted me. He was in surgery. It turned out to be a six-hour-long major surgery. They had identified an internal perforation of the abdomen that they repaired. The doctors told her that if they had not gotten to him when they did... He would not have made it. What if he had parked in a different place in the parking lot? I never would have noticed him. He was a young guy, early 30s, young baby, young wife. He spent more than a week in the hospital recovering, and I kept getting texts from his wife with updates, and I I asked eventually if I could go visit, if he would like that, and he welcomed that. When, when I went, he told me he had spent a lot of time since the surgery thinking about how close his baby daughter had come to growing up without a daddy. He, he told me that he was so thankful I had shown up. He told me I had good karma He repeated that several times. I had good karma. I said, from my faith tradition, what I would say is that that God took care of him by putting me in the right place at the right time. He agreed. That language worked just fine for him. He talked about the day he collapsed. His truck had been stalling and cars had been honking and he wasn't feeling good and he finally pulled off into the parking lot and collapsed on the grass. And then I and others showed up. He said it had felt like night and day. Everybody on the road had been angry. Everybody in the parking lot had been kind. He had never experienced anything like that. He thought maybe someday he would like to visit my church. I told him I'd love that. We, we talked about our, our pasts. He showed me pictures of his baby daughter. I showed him pictures of my not-baby kids. <laughs> he told me he had grown up in the area, had gone to college, was headed for law school, but couldn't afford law school, so finally became a UPS driver. His family had immigrated from a Middle East country when he was very young. When 9-11 hit, they decided it was too dangerous to go to mosque. So he grew up pretty much untethered to any faith tradition. He'd never been inside a Christian church. He didn't know anything about what Christians believed. So I talked about my faith in very simple terms. I, I had to work to not use Christian jargon, but he was patient with me. He wanted to hear because we had already become connected with each other. So, so I talked about God's love, about Jesus, about Jesus' death, maybe one sentence each. I told him I had been praying for him. My church had been praying for him. And I offered to pray, and he accepted that. So I prayed a very simple prayer for his recovery. Weeks later, after he had recovered from surgery, he texted me that he and his family would like to visit my church. So I called him because I kept thinking 
a church service might feel kind of weird to someone who had never attended one. So I explained they didn't have to leave their shoes at the door. They, we didn't kneel to pray. We had free child care for his daughter if they wanted that. I said we'd be standing up to sing. We would sit down to listen to someone teaching from our holy book. It happened to be a communion Sunday, so I explained what that meant to us and that it's reserved for those who believe in Jesus Christ, but that they could just sit in their seats and it would not look conspicuous and it wouldn't feel uncomfortable. They came. They liked the service. They liked the people. They thought maybe they would come back one day. And then COVID hit. And they ghosted me. And here we are today. I believe that God is still reaching out to them and will someday draw draw them to himself. A conversation across cultural barriers across faith traditions. I was describing that experience to some friends recently, and one of them said she would have been afraid to talk about her faith with someone from a different background. I told her it wasn't scary at all, because by the time we talked about our beliefs, we had become friends, and we were genuinely interested in where the other came from, we genuinely wished the other well. Who knew that God would start that adventure in a parking lot? Think back to October. We here at Covenant had an adventure in our parking lot. Trunk or treat. We threw a party and the neighborhood showed up. And we had fun loving on our neighbors, including neighbors from other cultures, other ethnicities, other belief systems. Who knows what God might next have in store for us, for them. Dear friends, God is reaching out to the world across all boundaries with the good news that Jesus Christ is Savior of the world. And God sweeps us up into that adventure. So let's stay light on our toes. Let's be willing to go where Jesus goes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you work in creative ways that we could not possibly predict. And your heart is towards all those you have created. We grieve over all of the walls that divide us. And we pray that you will help us know how to bridge those gaps with your love in your way as we follow Jesus. And we look forward to the day that one day every tongue every tribe, every people, every language will worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Pastor Nancy Duff, Senior Pastor of Covenant Community Church of Vacaville. This has been the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. To nominate your congregation for Church of the Week, please email us the name and address of your pastor and church along with a link to your church's website to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. Again, that's the name and address of your pastor and church along with a link to the website and email to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. While all submissions will be considered, not every submission is guaranteed airtime. Thank you for joining us today, and be sure to tune in again next week at this time for the Church of the Week. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.